Hola. Hello. Bienvenidos a Enredo. A podcast about raising bilingual children. I do like to read with my mama. This is Monica. And this is Paula. Welcome to Entre Dos. A podcast about raising bilingual children. If you're listening to this show, you already know that bilingualism is good. That it is an essential part of what you want for your children. But how can we make languages more accessible in our communities? In this episode, we begin exploring how you can go from knowing to doing. Think of it as a call to action. Advocating for our children is an inherent part of parenting. We do it every single day in both big and small ways. Our guest for this episode has made it into her life's work. Amanda Seawold, president-elect of the Joint National Committee for Language, spends much of her time advocating for language programs and policy. She is also the owner of Maracas Language Programs, has raised a bilingual daughter, and is an experienced language teacher. We opened up by asking Amanda about the state of dual language education in the U.S. Okay, well, so as you both know, I'm sure, uh, language education in the United States has been marginalized forever. The, the history of world language education in the United States is that it's always been marginalized. It's always considered in the schools a special and not a part of the essential core curriculum. Um, and, and that is a challenge that we've always faced. It's often pushed off to related arts or, like I said, as a special. It's often the class that um, kids are pulled from for whatever other thing is going on. Uh, and that poses a challenge. The reason behind that marginalization, I think there are several different reasons. One of them is that there have never been uh, instruments for assessment that are required at the state level the way that some of the other standardized tests require uh, pa passing them or you know, students to take part in them. Now, I'm not saying that assessment is, is the answer to it. What I'm saying is that because there, even if you have policy in place, like in New Jersey, we have policy in place that by a certain grade, you have to have, you have to be able to communicate. But there's the, the teeth of legislation like that are, you know, cut because they, it, do, it doesn't work if you don't have an assessment tool or some uh, mechanism by which you can assess this on, an, on a consistent basis. So that's one of the challenges. The other reason that I think that language education has been marginalized, and there's two others. One of the other reasons is the history of instruction model, instructional models in language education. I think we have to be honest with ourselves in my profession. We have for the last 15, 20 years had a huge paradigm shift in the way that language education is, is taking place. I mean, I talk to teachers all the time. I work with teachers around the country and every group I walk into, the first question I ask is what happens when you're at a party and you tell someone that you're a language educator? Without Without any doubt, every single time that I ask that question, without hesitation, the teachers respond by saying, oh, they always say, well, I took four years of so-and-so language and I can't say anything, or I can only say something like, Juan y Maria toca la guitarra en el bosque de Chapultepec, because it's memorized, or it's like a conjugation. Um, and that's sad. And so what I try to tell teachers is that's our legacy in this field until we change it. And what's happened in the last 15 to 20 years as the American Council on Teaching of Foreign Languages has collaborated with other organizations around the world to develop national world readiness standards, um, looking at world language and identifying proficiency growth as the model for measuring uh, 
measuring growth in the language across different uh, modes of communication. Because of that, I mean, when you say the word fluent or you say the word bilingual, the reason that that's never been able to hold much weight is because there hasn't been a real measurement to help us see the progress and to indicate progress. And that's where the National World Readiness Standards actually have come into play, because I think that that helps us shift that history into a new light. So challenges that we face are the marginalization because of the lack of assessment tools, because of the lack of requirements in schools around the country and the state to state variation, and also the town to town variation. Also the history of instruction, which has been changing, I'm thrilled to say, and that we really see a difference now. Um, and the other thing is, let's face it, is this um, some xenophobia that we are you know, terrifyingly facing every day in our world and that continues to contribute to this marginalization of language education, not only of language education, but of bilingualism as a, an important and essential strength of our communities. So those are the challenges that I think that we face primarily. And of course, the, what ends up happening is that we face a lack of funding as a result for education as a whole, but especially for world language education. Legislation helps support the value of dual language programs. But how do we go from having legislation in place to getting the funding necessary to make it happen? Here's Amanda. Yes, that is really the fight. The fight is where can the funding come from in a consistent way? One of the things that we've realized in advocating for language education in the United States at the federal level is that a lot of that funding, uh, really the best place to look is in the field of national security and in the Defense Department. And the funding that we find is often more consistently available in the Defense Department than even in the Department of Education, ironically. Um, but, but we knew years ago, I don't, there was a, the Foreign Language Assistance Program was called the FLAP program many years ago. And under that amazing program, um, so many fantastic world language programs developed, even immersion programs started, dual language immersion programs developed all over the country as a result uh, in languages beyond, you know, Spanish and French and the just really just incredible opportunities. But when that funding was cut off, even though in, for, for some time the legislation stayed in place, they zeroed out the funding for it and we lost it. And so what ends up happening is we have to continue to create new legislation, to create new pathways at the federal level. The challenge that I see beyond what JNCL Nicholas is able to do at the federal level is also looking at it from the local and state levels. And, and that's, that's where the work continues for our advocates. The organization hosts an annual meeting in Washington, D.C., where advocates get training and the opportunity to meet with representatives of their legislative districts. But then when they go home, depending on what state you're going to and what your local situation is, you then have to take that idea and apply it to your local and state situation. I see it every day in New Jersey as I fight for dual language immersion legislation here. I see the barriers and there's just a where you think you would have an easier time of it sometimes in the state. I think it's deceptive. Often it's harder in the states. Then you find other examples like in Utah and in Delaware, where there is an, a huge governor's initiative to promote dual language immersion education across the entire state. So the variation in what's happening at the different state levels, and of course, the way that the schools, the districts are set up at the state levels really varies so much. Uh, just one other example is in New Jersey, we have over 600 districts. Those are tiny little districts, right? Like everyone's just like one town pretty much. Whereas when I started my career teaching, I was in Virginia where you had county-based school systems and the county-based school system model 
allowed for more differentiation across the different schools in that county. So for example, in Arlington County, we had several different dual language immersion programs in the elementary schools and students could, there was some choice even within the public schools. That makes a huge difference in our ability to advocate for program growth. So, you know, we face these different challenges and the importance behind the legislation and the funding is that, uh, well, the legislation is that step into getting the funding. The funding is, as you said, that ongoing struggle that we have. And we've realized over time, one of the greatest tools is to start to collaborate with other areas, with other disciplines. And one of the pieces that this goes back to that marginalization of language is in the past, most of our schools were teaching about language. You know, you're teaching, you're teaching grammar, you're teaching, and grammar is important, it's essential. But what, what we really need to focus on is what is the overall value of language proficiency for a human being? You know, what, what, is, what is the value here? And the value is in uh, career development. The value is in understanding uh, the needs uh, across, uh, across companies and nonprofits for all sectors of the economy. The value is in understanding the, the need for language for national security and for global diplomatic and economic relations and stability. Uh, and of course, the need for language is about understanding and about peace and pathways to peace and certainly individual personal development. But what that means is that our language classrooms, our language education must mirror that ideal. That means that we should be teaching about problem solving in the language. We should be teaching, you know, connecting to content and to other academic ideas throughout the curriculum. That shows our value proposition as language educators. And certainly from a parental standpoint, it allows your, your children to grow using the language to solve problems, becoming critical thinkers in another language. And that is really the, the key to success, I believe. We asked Amanda about English as a second language programs or ESL which are designed to help the transition of non-native English speakers in monolingual schools and their role in developing dual language program. Historically, ESL has been, as you said, transitioning students out of their own heritage or uh, native language, which has been an error. It has been a huge error on, on the public education's part in the United States. The realization of that error came in the development of additive bilingual programs, not transitional bilingual programs. What you're describing is a trans, either it's an ESL program or it's transitional bilingual, in which case you're either just working on English development or you're having a bi transitional bilingual program where you're just using, let's say, the Spanish until they can speak English well enough. To me, that is an unacceptable outcome. I believe that most language education, all language educators, and I believe all ESL teachers believe that that is an unacceptable outcome as well. But traditionally in the United States, that has, has been the way that it's developed. Now, the movement towards dual language immersion, the movement towards two-way dual language immersion, where you have half of the speakers are native speakers of the language and half of the speakers may be um, non-native speakers of the target language, they're native English speakers. You also have one-way dual language immersion, where you have programs that are trying to get students where it's densely populated with English language speakers, native English language speakers, you want them to become multilingual as well, bilingual as well. So you're working on building that. I believe that both of these models are essential, not one out without the other. And we can't make anything about it be elitist. And we also can't leave out schools that need it 
where there are where it is the best model of building English and target language literacy. Uh, all I can say is this: if we move teacher education, ESL teacher education, to a model that insists on lang on language proficiency beyond English for the teachers, that the teachers must speak more than one language, that helps us empower a new group of teachers. It helps us start to think about that bilingual education model in more of a way of valuing the heritage and native language as an additive biliteracy model. You are not looking to move someone out of it, but moving people forward. The best models where you can see this, I, I've worked with the program in Delaware, in uh, in Wilmington, where half of the speakers are more, maybe maybe more than half are native Spanish speakers and the others are native English speakers. and. What we're seeing is the growth of additive biliteracy. The students are developing literacy in their native languages as well as a target language. That allows for the, the students' cognitive growth, the students' social and emotional wealth, and a pride that I can tell you I've watched come out of these children in a way that you will not see in any other situation. Amanda believes that the future of language education, including ESL education, lies in having more immersive and equitable models. The JNCL Nicholas works to improve opportunities both for world language education, but in the in world language education, you also have English as a world language, right? So we're working to make sure that legislation represents English language learners as well. And that's why even in the BEST Act and in some of the other in the SPELL Act, we're looking at ways that we can make sure that there are equitable opportunities for English language learners in world language education and in uh, native and heritage language development uh, and literacy growth. In addition to that, it's about improving um, how we work together. Uh, you know, JNCL Nicholas works with the National Association for Bilingual Education and the Roundtable for English Language Learners. Uh, here in my own state of New Jersey, I'm working with the NJTSAW, which is the English Language Teachers Association and the Bilingual Educators Association, to build a dual language immersion network of educators to talk about these values. I do believe that it's the change has to happen. It has to happen organically. It has to happen through outcome demonstration. I know because my entire career started in a dual language immersion program where half of my students were native Spanish speakers. I know, I watched these children grow. I taught third grade, I taught fourth grade. I watched them grow their literacy in two languages simultaneously. I watched the way it impacted them socially and emotionally to be able to go into the English side of the day with their English language native counterparts and feel like they, were, they had peers they could work with. And then when they went into the Spanish side of the day, they could feel like leaders on some level. What, I, what I'm saying is that it levels the playing field in a two-way dual language immersion program. It allows for growth and understanding and common and mutual interests in understanding ideas through language, not just who speaks which language, but, but that you are using language to promote ideas and thinking. Uh, I encourage parents to find a dual language immersion program where it is all about, and you really have to be careful with this because it's not consistent sometimes, you wanna look for one that is all focused on additive biliteracy. It's not about transitioning anyone out, but it's about additive biliteracy. And you walk into a classroom and you listen to students talking about exploration, talking about the water cycle, talking about these ideas, uh, solving problems of clean water around the world, talking about sustainable development. And these students are discussing these ideas in more than one language. That is where we're going to see a change. Uh, that's where I think that our system can affect change
for both native English speakers and speakers, students who are learning English is by adding the value of biliteracy. Looking at languages holistically is crucial when advocating for bilingual education. It needs to be presented as a basic expectation of the K through 12 experience. Dual language learning is not an add-on, but an integral part of every aspect of the curriculum. Right. And, and honestly, that's also absolutely. When you have a value proposition where you are at contributing to the overarching goals of the school and of the school curriculum as a whole, then it's much harder to pull away. If you're just learning about numbers and colors, it, you don't have the same value. And this is something that I work with districts around the country about. So the advocacy has different, different dimensions. You know, the legislative advocacy that JNCL Nicholas focuses on is so essential uh, as an overarching piece. But it's in these towns and communities and schools and states where we as, as, edu as an educator myself and as a parent, this is where I need to use my voice to start to make it clear that what I want for my children, what I need to see in my classroom is the use of language for meaningful purposes. We asked Amanda about how the normalization of K through 12 standardized testing is impacting dual language advocacy. Here's what she said. Well, I, I think that when we're talking about uh, standardized testing and the, and the challenges that standardized testing pose to a child's cognitive growth, one, and to educational creativity and growth, two, that's a problem in and of itself. When you take it to the idea of what is valued and when I say valued, I, be, I mean both as an ideal and as a funding priority in school districts, the standardized testing becomes this kind of more essential tool that than we want it to be. But because we know that the assessments and the outcomes are often tied to some of that funding, any time that we can find a way to demonstrate a consistent growth in language usage and language proficiency through any type of assessment is, is actually, um, or it, through a consistent assessment, more importantly, um, it really does also help us uh, demonstrate our value and keep that funding. So the way I see it is it is, they push back and forth. But until our society decides, okay, testing, standardized testing is gone, which you and I, we all know as parents, that's not happening anytime soon. You know, watching my child apply for college and dealing with the SATs and all of the other, and the ACTs and all the challenges that we still face with, with even college entrance and standardized testing indicates that we are not moving away from this anytime soon. So if that's the truth, then what we need to do as educators and as parents is to know that a valid proficiency-driven assessment of language, one that looks at how my child can use the language, can speak in the language, can think in the language, can understand in the language, that those are the tools that will ultimately demonstrate the type of growth that makes us of value and that helps us grow our programs. Again, those assessments, though, also need to help us uh, you know, think about our curriculum growth. Our curriculum, going back to that same idea, has to demonstrate that it's about more than a list of words and some grammar. And so the advocacy to me is both legislative and instructional. And, and that's the way I've always seen it, both as, a, you know, as an educator, as a parent, and also as a business owner. You know, I, I straddle a whole bunch of different worlds myself. And so as I think about this, I have to think about it in many different ways. And, um, and I always come back to the being a parent piece. And I say that just because, uh, you know, everything that I've done in this field and in my entire career, I, when I reflect on it, goes back to my children. 
knowing that when my, my daughter was born in Arlington, Virginia, had we stayed in Arlington, she would have had educational opportunities in their county-based immersion program that she wouldn't have when I moved back to New Jersey. And I knew that, so I, I felt the need to create something, right? And so these, these types of things as parents, as bilingual parents yourselves, and as you know, your listeners think about this, we have to look for those opportunities, find those tools, and speak up. And I, I honestly believe that parents haven't harnessed their power enough yet. A lot of this work will be organized via the America's Language Caucus. The caucus will act as a forum for policy ideas from its members in order to engage legislative advocacy. Here's more. The America's Languages Caucus uh, is designed to raise awareness uh, to about the value of language education, the, need, the essential need for equity in language education, and to ensure that resources are allocated, ensure that legislation and funding are, are taking place at the federal level. Uh, we want to improve, the, the caucus is designed to improve access, make it equitable across all uh, parts of the country at all different levels, socioeconomic levels, and in all demographics. Um, so a caucus, as you all know, is, is, a, is a group of members of Congress. And in this case, it started in the House in, uh, in, at the federal level. And it's open to senators as well. We're working on getting some senators to join. But as of now, we have over 20 members already. And that represents more than 16 states already. And that says to me that now we have a group of legislators that um, we can educate as parents, as advocates, as language professionals, both in the private sector and the nonprofit sector, to help make them aware on a regular basis. And the caucus allows us to have access to those people, to have access to the, the people who work in their offices, who are often the ones who help get the decisions made. Um, and so that's the value of the, of the America's Languages Caucus. And within the caucus, there, we're currently um, focusing on certain pieces of legislation to help get them passed. Uh, the World Language Advancement and Readiness Grant Program has been uh, approved as a part of defense uh, piece of legislation, but now we have to get the funding to happen. So now we're looking at appropriations and the caucus is working on making sure that the appropriations will happen to allow for uh, more programs to grow, more opportunities to grow. We look at the Syllable Act, which is focused on building dual language immersion programs based on the knowledge that dual language immersion serves our English language learners as well as our native, native English speakers and to allow them to grow in the language in a biliteracy model that is additive uh, that is that is additive through the entire uh, K through 12 process. Um, and then there's the BEST Act, which is designed to help grow teacher capacity and help we need more teachers. And when we look at teachers, uh, teacher candidates or students who could become teachers who may not have the financial wherewithal to do it, the BEST Act would help us uh, find ways to have them uh, be able to afford education and become teachers because we have a huge teacher shortage across the board in the United States, but especially in world language education and bilingual education. Um, so, so these are the types of things that having a caucus can really help us tie together. We know what you're thinking. I just want my child to be bilingual. This definitely sounds like a lot of work and we can often feel overwhelmed. Amanda gave us a few small steps on how to advocate for language education in our community. Yes, advocate, advocacy is overwhelming. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to lie. Being an advocate all the time is overwhelming. So is being a parent, however, right? Because as a parent, you're an advocate every single day of your child's life. 
the way that I see that parental advocacy and language education can work best is starting on a local level. You can you can start by speaking up in the areas where you think that you might be heard and also in the areas where you won't be. Um, sometimes we have to raise our voices in places, even when we know that the people will disagree with us. So I start by thinking about, when I think about advocating as a parent, what are all the hats that I wear, right? I just mentioned, I'm, a, I'm an educator, I'm a parent, I'm a business owner, you know, I'm a language learner myself, I'm multilingual, you know, I, you know, all of these pieces, I'm a taxpayer, I'm a house, I'm a homeowner. Um, I, all of the, I'm a citizen of this state and of this country. And if you start to kind of assess these pieces, you start to realize that the stories that come along with these different aspects of your life lead you to connections, to have conversations that will ultimately help you. I'll just give you a very brief example of years ago when I was, when we were trying to save that FLAP program, I was kind of doing a personal inventory. And this is what I encourage parents to do, doing a personal inventory of who I know, how well I know them and what their connection is to the world right now. And I remember that I had a high school friend who was writing for a very conservative publication now. And I thought, well, you know what? He's a journalist, he has a voice, and let me see if he'll be willing to use it for language. And it ended up that reconnecting with that friend of mine and you know, discussing these issues with him, helping him see the value as this, this being a bipartisan issue, really um, formulated a great opportunity. He wrote an article that was uh, specifically about how essential language education is, especially for national security and beyond. And publishing that article helped us get into legislative offices that we might not have been able to get into. So what I would say is take those little steps. First, do your personal reflective inventory. Who do you know? How do you know them? What's your history with them? And who might be willing to listen or not? Then bring it up in a PTA meeting. I think that for too long, and again, I'm, I'm speaking not as a JNCL Nicholas representative right now, but as a parent, I want to say that our PTA meetings across the country have turned into mostly fundraising opportunities. Mostly, are we going to build a playground? I, I see less influence that parents have been having in curriculum and in school development over the years. And I want to say that I think that we need to harness that power. I think we need to go in and say that this is important and this is why. I think an opportunity that I would love to continue to work on with parents around the country is to take the information in the congressional reports on the value of language education and the need for it. I think that there's a combination of things that we can do. The first steps are very simple. Take a personal inventory, think about who you know and how they connect to you. Go to your PTA meeting with information, go to your board meeting with information and even share it with the members of your board of education. Uh, and then, you know, really, Consider joining a group of parents. Uh, you know, your group here is a phenomenal way of sharing information. I've developed a Facebook group called Parents for Language, and anyone will, you know, can join it. As I said, I want to create this well of 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 uh, active, uh, able, and interested people who want to talk about how important this is. So that when I go to a legislative office or when we find out that we're working on trying to solve a problem, we have people who are ready to, to speak up. In the same way JNCL Nicholas has built an advocacy you know, army, so to speak, or an advocacy group network of professionals, I would like to see the same thing happen for parents. Another small action parents can take is signing up for the JNCL Nicholas News Brief to stay informed about legislation and calls to action. Sometimes you can do your part with something simple like signing a petition. Regardless of how much time you can devote to help, 
the key is for parents to get involved. I know that this is going to be an uphill battle. I'm in it. <laughs> I do think that we have to set these goals. We have to believe that this is this is the pathway forward as parents. And I say this from the bottom of my heart as a parent. Um, I believe we have to set these goals. We have to see them. We have to know the value of the outcomes of them. And then we have to forge a pathway forward. And I do also believe that the only way we do that is together. I really believe that parents in Miami, parents in Texas, parents in New Jersey, and parents all around the country need to be a part of this. And I think it needs to be parents who are bilingual and parents who are not. Thank you to Amanda Seawold for joining us today. We hope you're inspired to get involved and advocate for language policy in your communities. Make sure to check out our show notes for links to important documents and resources that you can use to talk about the importance of language education. You'll also find links to the JNCL News Brief and Amanda's Facebook group. If you like our show, please take a moment to review it. We would be so grateful. And let's keep the conversation going on social media. Join us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Entre Dos Podcast. Hasta la próxima. Nos vemos.